I love the boldness of the design of where they're standing before that ramp comes down. It's such a simple design and, and such a simple concept that I ask the question, why not make it more complicated? I mean, the thing is that it's such a great, beautiful design. If it had been any more complicated, it would have been not as good. So what I love, they've never been afraid of simplifying and pairing it back and understanding what the core, uh, the, the, the core root of the story is. Any movie when we collaborate, I, I, I've always seen it as being invited to be part of a band. And in a band, in a music, you know, in the music world, you're there to, not to be the, the show, but you're there to support the song. So now we're, we're there to support the story, to support the, the leader, who in this case is Denis. He knows what he likes and he can focus on it. He can listen to his heart, not his head. Like there is a whole series of things I think he has mastered as the director to do the job well. When you're making a film, some of the successes of a film are not just the visuals, they're the way you got to the visuals. It was, up until that point, the most challenging lighting job I've ever done. And action. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Shot podcast. This is a show where we explore what goes into making today's most visually stunning stories with the master filmmakers behind them. And I'm your host, Derek Stetler. This is a special episode on Dune, featuring an exclusive conversation with both the film's production designer and director of photography. My name is Patrice Vermette. I'm the uh, production designer of Dune. My name is Greg Fraser, and I am the director of photography of Dune. Dune is what many are calling the definitive big-screen adaptation of Frank Herbert's landmark science fiction novel published in 1965. And it's been director Denis Villeneuve's fantasy project since he first dreamed of becoming a film director. The film is made on a massive scale, from the mythic imagery, courtesy of Greg Fraser, to the futuristic brutalism meets Mesopotamian architecture, and those organic design elements, courtesy of Patrice Vermet and that epic score from Hans Zimmer. Dune has already become a part of the awards conversation, and I am so grateful that I had the chance to speak with both Greg and Patrice about the film. The timing was perfect too. As we chatted on the day it was announced, Dune Part 2 was officially moving forward, and they graciously spoke with me despite Patrice being in Australia and Greg being in the UK. Now, in this exclusive conversation, You'll hear Patrice's approach to designing the grand sets of Dune, Greg's approach to lighting those massive sets, why Greg is such a big fan of LED film lighting, and how Dune required more than the entire world supply of LED film lights, the biggest challenge they faced making the film, the approach to coverage and lenses, and much more. You might even learn what the spacecrafts are actually made from. I hope you enjoy, and if you're new to the show, please be sure to subscribe here and follow The Art of the Shot on social media to keep up with news and additional bonus content. The links are in the episode description. And now, please enjoy The Art of the Shot with Dune's production designer and director of photography. When I was watching Dune, it was in IMAX. And That's so, the good way to watch it. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it was an IMAX headquarters, actually. So I felt, you know, like... 
that's probably the best IMAX theater I can go to. And uh, the whole time I was watching it, I just couldn't help but think that it's the first cinematic masterpiece of the decade. You know, I mean, I don't know how that sounds or feels to you, but that's how it felt to me as I was watching it. There's just unparalleled artistry on display in every single department. And to be able to speak with both the cinematographer and production designer of the film is incredible, you know, honor for me. So, Patrice, I know your collaboration with Denis goes back many films, but Greg, this is your first time working with Denis, I believe. So how did you get involved in this project? Well, I mean, listen, I, 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 I met Denis a number of years ago at a barbecue at, uh, at Roger Deakins house. I think they just finished, they together as well as Patrice had just finished Sicario. Mm. Um, so I'd known Denis sort of since then. Um, I'd also worked with Patrice on Vice with Adam McKay. Um, and so I, I guess there was a link there when, you know, when Denis was, I guess, in need, I won't speak for Patrice, but I guess, what, you know, when Denis was in need for a, a DP, I guess they were throwing around names and maybe my name got pulled out of the hat. I don't know. That's Patrice, I guess. Your name was pulled out of a hat. And I said, don't work with Greg Fraser. You're making a huge mistake. And but if you choose Greg, I will be extremely happy, obviously. But uh, no, no, it's a <laughs> no. Denny was um, Denny was uh, throwing names around. And he said, uh, you know, "What's your experience with uh, with Greg Fraser?" I said, "Denny, like if you if you work with Greg, you will never regret it in your life. It's it's going to be a fantastic journey for for you, for me, for for all of us." And um, And that's it, you know. It and uh, and the rest, uh, the, the 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 rest, is, I guess, is uh, is history, you know. <laughs> yeah, it certainly worked out well. I'd I'd been a massive fan of the work that these guys have done for years, for years. So, you know, every film that they and I say these guys, I'm talking about Denis and Patrice, particularly because, um, you know, as a team, you know, they've they've done such amazing work together, and. Regardless of the, the 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 format, or regardless of the style of film, regardless of the um, the length or where it's shot, there's just an elegance to kind of every decision that gets made, and and that's how I would define Denis as a director. Generally, there is an elegance to his work that that exists, and it carries through. It carries through all of his collaborators, and Patrice, I feel, is. You know, it's a little bit tricky talking about Patrice in the third person because he's sitting right here <laughs> listening to this. But but you know, like there, there's a there's a there's a massive elegance to everything Patrice does. So you've got Denise's taste, Patrice's taste. You've combined someone like Paul, who is our VFX supervisor. I don't know. For me, it's a bit of a dream because everybody there's no there's no one person you're kind of going. Oh man, we really need to look out for X, Y, and Z to make sure they, you know, they're they're their bad traits don't come through because mm -hmm. we didn't have that. The, the team that we had, and again, I, I put that down to Denis because he's the leader, puts together a team of like-minded individuals that, that, that are, are malleable enough to go with his vision but also contribute to that vision. And I think, I think what's also great about this team is that, um, you know, like there's no ego in the, in the team. We can... You know, we can we can receive a, like a comment and, and and not take it personally, or, or, or we are all there to, to to support each other and and make and, and we all know that 
whatever we say is to make them to challenge and to make the the, the the movie better the project better so and it's uh, obviously always in, in in line with Denis's vision but um, it's uh, the collaborative uh, effort uh, between between us I think is quite uh, the, the level of collaboration I think is quite extraordinary and dune there's a lot of examples of that uh, throughout the the process uh, of making dune Well, it, it shows up on screen. I feel like there'd be no other way. I, I can't imagine how something that feels so complete and harmonious and, you know, special in so many ways could occur in any other, you know, manner apart from all these different departments working together in such a kind of tight-knit collaboration. I mean, Denis has spoken before about the importance of sharing a perspective and sensibility with the people that, you know, he works very closely with, specifically, you know, his uh, cinematographers. So, Greg, when you were first kind of getting to know him and talking about this project, can you talk about that sensibility and perspective that you and, and he shared together? And, um, you know, what kind of discussions you had when it came to crafting the visual identity of Dune? Well, one of the things that first leapt out to me about Denis was his his massive respect for his collaborators. Like massive, you know, and this is what I love about Denis is he is this, he puts everybody on an equal standing, you know, from a collaboration standpoint. And he has such a deep respect for Patrice and his designers and his DPs and, you know, I. Trust me, I came into this film with a, the history of Denis having worked with some of the best cinematographers on the planet. You know, like, that wasn't lost on me. And, and, and you know, I, I, his choices for cinematographers over his film career have been incredible. So, you know, I can be self-deprecating and say, well, he obviously got my name wrong and I accidentally got the job. But it, the, the reality was the pressure that I put on myself uh, was quite high. Um, but I also understood that I couldn't, I could only do what I could do. You know what I mean? I could only be who I was. Uh, I just needed to do that the best way I could. So, you know, listening to Denis was the, the first step in the process for me. You know, listening to what he had to say. Uh, you know, I've said this a few times in, in interviews in the past, but, but he, you know, he's been living with this film for multiple decades mm -hmm. in his mind. And, you know, it's not... It's not a stretch to say that everything that he's done up to this point was leading up to this film, you know, and this series of films. So to to discount that or to to, to to not listen to that would have been foolhardy. So I just spent the first, you know, number of meetings that we had listening. You know, there's, a, there's always that danger. You go away from a meeting going, oh, man, does he feel like I'm... Or he or she feel like I'm not uh, suggesting enough. You know, I, I made a real... I remember the first film that I did, the first short film I did with Jane Campion. And this was years ago when I was a very young, very impressionable DP. And it was a short film. And, you know, she told me what she thought. And then I came in with all these references. Like I wanted to be this kind of front-footed kind of, you know, DP that had lots of ideas and was contributing. And, and she hated every single one of my references. Every single one of my references. And it was really scary because I, I walked out of that meeting going, I'm going to get fired. She hates what I have to think. So I quickly uh, shifted my, my mentality for those meetings to go, I'm just going to listen 
because I, I just need to hear, I need somebody to offload their, their thoughts. The thoughts could be from a three month stint thinking about it or a 30 year stint thinking about it. So with, with Denis, I'd thought about it and just, uh, so I just listened and I listened and listened. So that was my first, first thing that I did. And, mm -hmm. and what did he tell you? What did you hear from him? Oh man, specifically, it's, it's quite hard to recall exactly. I mean, I recall he, he told me how he felt and dreamed about the movie, what ratio, what size, what, like, you know, all of the, all the, all the adjectives that are being used for this film now, mm -hmm. the event, the, 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 the scale, but the, but the intimacy, like all these words that are being used now, he used, this is a mark of a good director. This, all of those feelings translated over. Yeah, the grandeur and the, the mix of intimacy, which actually gives the scale, which is on display, even more power. But, you know, another thing, and, and, you know, you touched upon it before about great directing, and that's the combination of the crafts. You know, it's the mm -hmm. combination of the crafts seamlessly. And, and I was really chuffed to, to read um, Chris Nolan's take on, on the film in that it's one, I think he said, what's well, one of the best CG live action um, mixes that he's ever seen. And I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, that is due to the direction of Denis, but it's the contribution of, of like-minded uh, departments from Patrice to Paul to myself to, who are working harmoniously to make each other's uh, work as good as possible, you know, as opposed to working at making their part look good, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that, that does happen in films. It does happen where individuals do the best that they can to make themselves look good but actually by doing that you're undermining the entire look of the film so you know as Patrice can attest like we had an incredibly good collaborative relationship uh to to try and link those two and it's lovely to see uh Christopher Nolan um notice that and say that publicly oh yeah I'm sure it must feel amazing well you know to to kind of carry through on that point actors you know the great actors completely agree they they say like you know the the most generous actor in a scene is really the best and the one who's trying to you know steal the scene for themselves is actually ruining it for actually for the audience experience of of the scene because the other actor then has very little to you know work off of and it's actually taking away from their ability to be you know doing their part yeah i mean what do you think what do you think patrice about that in terms of the collaboration in terms of the the work that Paul did and listen, I always see uh, filmmaking as if we're uh, when we we collaborate like on any movie when we collaborate. I, I I've always seen it as being invited to be part of a band, and in a band in a music you know in a music world you're there to you're you're there to not to be the the show but you're there to support the song. So now we're we're there to support the story to support the, the leader, who in this case is Denis, and we're, we're we we are there to be. Um, it's going to be very weird now what I'm going to, what I'm going to say but we we need to be invisible and just there to support and to play the, the part that is needed and not overplay it you know so so mm -hmm. um I think uh, I think that's the the the, the, the collaboration uh, that is there and and within us you know like uh, within the the be, besides being being there for 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 Denis and we're there for for each other um just for just for uh, the collaboration between between me and, and Greg, 
there was something that I've always dreamed of doing uh, on a movie, and uh, I, I never, you know, had either the, the courage to ask or because of you know, what my what I wanted was I knew it was expensive, but it was to um, to support um, my painters when they paint and they age the set and they 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 and and it's to to give them the opportunity and to give. By doing that, it's to give the, the, the opportunity to, to, to the DP and to, to create the best sets possible and best uh, effects possible. It, it was to have the, the sets lit, pre-lit, before doing the, the patina and the, and the aging and the color and, the, and mm -hmm. putting the, the, the last color layers to, to give depth to, to, to the mm. textures. And, uh, you know, like uh, Greg was extremely receptive to that. And with Jamie uh, as gaffer, they they they, they were pre-lighting the sets before, before we were finishing painting them, and and that's you know that's a, a strange collaboration that that is a perfect collaboration I would say, mm. Uh, mm. amongst many others you know. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of almost perfectly embodied in the glow globe. You know, you designed a light for the story of the film, and beautiful, amazing, you know, floating. Uh, luminescent globe and yet obviously you know that was somehow achieved as a um, as a real light on set you know to light the actors right how did you guys uh, work that one out a bit like you described it <laughs> yeah what'd you do Greg did you just kind of hang like a china ball and and have that kind of following the actors no we had a real uh... yeah that's a simple way of describing it I guess it was a lot more involved but yeah I, I think if I recall and Patrice you can back me up or this or, ch or change my, my recollection but but that was a discussion we had a discussion there were discussions about practicals there always are and we you know we looked at okay well are these practicals static in in the great hall and where do they where do the practicals come from because they're not there during the day so are they just appear do people bring them out like how do we justify practical lights in this in the residence let's say um and I remember we talked about that by going, well, we could just stick them there, but then we, I think we reverted back to the to the text, didn't we, yeah. Patrice, and and read the text and go, well, these lights actually follow them. This is this is what they do, and um, yeah, it poses a series of um, technical issues because, as you know, like it's it, these these aren't just little like um, china balls from IKEA. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? These are things that that weigh some serious tonnage. Um, and in keeping with the design of the of the film, they needed to be big at times, and they needed to unfortunately be a little heavy at times because that's that the whole residence have has this heaviness to it. So, oh, so they were actually brought out on set. Yes. They weren't just kind of filled in in visual effects. No, they were on set. They were fully practical. They were beautifully wow. designed as well. I mean, that type of things. That if if I had the space in my in my great residence, I'd put them in there as well. I'll make smaller, um, smaller version for but, you, Craig. <laughs> but, the, um, but so we had to come up with ways. You know, our key grip guy, Micheletti, had to come up with ways to to move these lights. And you know, it was it was tricky at times, but we we figured it out. We figured it out. And then then Paul, through his uh, magic, uh, painted out rigging and bases and wires and cableage. And maybe maybe there was a dolly and track for one. Maybe there was a crane on another. Maybe there was a a pulley rig for another. Like everything was different. Well, I think that is kind of a great um, segue to talk about the, the process of really determining what is built for this film and, and the design aesthetic behind it. Patrice, how did you go about 
determining what was your thinking behind the aesthetic for House Atreides, House Harkonnen, and then Arakin. Determining what was built or determining... Yeah, well, determining the aesthetic and then determining what was built and what was going to be visual effects. Well, at, f at first... Um... At first, obviously, I had the meetings with uh, with Denis, like uh, just like uh, Greg had. I was fortunate to have like seven months of uh, of thinking and drawing with my team of concept artists, and uh, to define what uh, what the world uh, what the worlds were go were going to be. And uh, so that was like a seven months uh, process in which we uh, we designed uh, most of uh, of every set and uh, ornithopters. And uh, other ships. Mm. I love the design of those. Uh, thank you, thank you. George Hall and Kali Wirtz uh, uh, were a big. Uh, were were the were the masters of uh, of those machines. Mm. And um, so so, obviously, the book talks about scale. the The design uh, of of each planet. I went into like. Uh, the the each planet has its realities uh, for 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 its the the, the nature of, of what they are because of the of their landscape and their uh, and their weather and their the, mm -hmm. the, the the reality of the elements. Yeah, they have such a strong identity immediately. Well, and the identity needs to come. You know, it, it cannot just be design for design. It needs to be to, to have some thoughts behind it. So, for instance, uh, Arakeen, uh, if you if you on Arrakis, the the winds go at 750 kilometers an hour. You know that's in the book. Uh, it mm. tears through metal. Uh, there's um, there's these uh, these giant worms uh, that live on that planet, which uh, are quite uh, uh, dangerous. So if you're gonna start a city and in, in that uh, design a city in, in that context, you would first of all think of uh, do the foundation of that city. Uh, in a, a protective environment, and you would mm. probably look for, for like a, a a mountain bowl, a rock bowl, for nat natural protection. And then when you, um, then the second step, when you start building the, the first buildings, you you, you take in, in con to consideration the speed of the of the wind. So you you put everything uh, at angles, so the wind sweeps over the building, and it's not fighting against the wind because then the building uh, would be would be destroyed, right? So that's where that kind of ziggurat yeah, architecture absolutely. came in. Absolutely, mm -hmm. and and then you know, like the 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 architecture for me that uh, that tells the most about uh, uh, a um, an empire or a uh, a colony. Uh, uh, a, a colonization, uh, uh, like a colonist uh, uh, entity, they come to a country yeah. and they want to show power to the to the local uh, people. So they would uh, in the book they they actually mention that the that the, the the residency is the biggest palace ever built by humankind. So that mm. gives you a good clue of okay, the scale is going to be big, and also it translates the uh, the idea, the journey that Paul is uh, is coming from. Uh, a much more, uh, you know, like it's the, the, obviously the sets are big as well in in, in Canada, but much much a, a much more human scale than, than they are on on Ara, on, um, on Arrakis on in Arakeen. Yeah, they're massive there. And then going back to 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 the residency and the architecture, you you think about okay, the heat in, of that planet uh, it's unbearable. So they would probably have extremely thick. Uh, walls because yeah. just like in caves it keep it keeps coolness inside 
and uh, you would never really want to have direct light. So, mm-hmm. so you, so we we thought about these these uh, system of uh, of light wells uh, mm. to light to light the scene. So, so that's you know that's part of the process. Each planet had that same you know these thoughts uh, behind like the the architecture because just uh, like uh, Denny encourages that as well uh, in his approach. We've again and myself, I'm not into designing for for for, for just the aesthetics. There there needs mm-hmm. to be a reason behind everything. And when it came to 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 when when we started pre-production, we had a book like a, a Bible. We called it the, the visual Bible of about like 130 Im- illustrations uh, that depicted the the look of the of, e- of each set and some props and the, the thoughtlers like like I said before. And uh, we realized that some of them were quite straightforward to build, but most of them <laughs> were quite. Uh, we're going to be representing a lot of challenges. And uh, and that's where the magic of Greg Fraser and uh, and uh, Paul Lambert came into practice because obviously we were some of those sets we were we were challenged by the the the, the size of the sets the the the, the physical uh, uh, realities of a soundstage and um, Greg you want to take this over for for the magic uh, for the that you guys created one of the great things. Derek about um, Patrice's artwork was that it was it was some of the most beautiful uh, drawings and illustrations of of exactly what you just heard him explain and um, I remember seeing him for the first time and just being absorbed and being absolutely like just engrossed in, in this for, the, for exactly the same reason that that you were watching the movie and but then the second time I looked at them was that was the reality kick in where it was like, oh my lord, we have to actually light these things. We have to make these things that are ideas into practical realities to put actors in to make mm-hmm. them look like they are in the world. And th- it that's hard, of course. I mean, it, because we'll, we'll, you know Patrice and Co were building their sets right out to the edges of the sound stages as they should have been because we needed that scale. Um, but then it was trying to come up with that balance of lighting because, you know, it's, that's the old adage, you know, it's like it doesn't matter how good something is if there's no light in it and it doesn't matter how, you know, um, if it's overly lit but not designed, it's still, you know, it's like this, this balance, it's finding that balance. Um, and so, again, this is where the collaboration comes in where you go, okay, well, we have to light. This is the, the minimum amount of space we need for light at the top of the stage or at the side of the stage. Um, so what we'll do is we'll adjust our um, we'll adjust our design accordingly, or we'll we'll you know create a the, the texture up until a certain point because obviously there are budget constraints too, just not just physicalities, but there's budget constraints on every movie I think we'll ever do our entire life. There's always somebody there with a calculator going, oh, you know, that's too much money. It's got to get the cost down. Like there's always going to be that person and. So we debated at what point we build the set to, and then beyond that point, we, we um, Patrice and his crew built sort of a scaff, scaffold shape that they wrapped in, uh, in in a material that had the same color as the as the walls, mm-hmm. and then Paul committed to extending that in post. And what that allowed it wasn't just getting rid of blue and grease green offset, which we all know is the 
is the root of all evil, VFX evil. <laughs> but it also allowed us to create the shapes of the light coming through those, those windows. Mm. And to me, a really big part of this story um, was the way the light behaves inside the residence. Yeah. Because in, normal, in a normal environment, in a normal movie, I say normal, in any other film, you can either turn on a practical which we didn't really have practicals built into the state, into the sets, right? Because there was stone and, you know, or you can make a window bigger. Like it's, you can kind of sidle up to the designer on most movies and go, hey, can we make that window a bit bigger? And can you put one over there? Because that's the, that's the way you light it. On this, the design of the shapes of the residence was integral to the story. And having me try and open up windows just wouldn't have worked. It, it, it just would have looked bad. It would have been this hodgepodge. So, you know, we, it, was a, it was a head scratcher for a long time about a number of sets, but we eventually, you know, with Patrice and with Paul and with Jamie, my gaffer, and, you know, with our, with our rental company, Ari and MBS, like we, we eventually got the lights we wanted to, to create the, the look and feel that we were after. And it, it was definitely a challenge. It was the most... It was up until that point the most challenging lighting job I've ever done, for sure. Were there any unique lighting techniques that you employed on this film, uh, apart from what you just described? Well, I, I've had a bit of a thing for LEDs since I did Rogue One in 2015, and, and there's a number of reasons why I like LED. And that's because um, working with digital cameras, I believe LEDs are the most tunable to the cameras. So... I, I like working with high-quality, high-end LEDs, and, and but that needs to be stated, those words, because sometimes there are LEDs out on the marketplace that are not high-end, that are not high-color. Yeah, they're not cinema-grade. Yeah, even they though may, they're being They may used say they are. <laughs> in, even though they're being used in cinema. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was a very much a fight uh, to make sure the lights we had were able to record the full spectrum of color in in Patrice's sets because you know we we had the most most beautifully intricate colored sets on this movie but they were subtle do you know what i mean like totally if we were building if we were building a nightclub scene right and Patrice was going oh yeah that wall's red and that wall's blue and you know and that's our primary blues and primary reds <clears throat> it'd be easy to use any lights we wanted but on this, the colours were so subtle. They sat within such a, a such a, a narrow band but had the most depth when you saw them with your eye. And this is going back to what Patrice talked about with lighting the sets in advance because you, you need that kind of that, that particular colour changeability and control in an LED to really bring out the colours of the sets. And so I tried to use LEDs primarily um, it wasn't always possible. We had some, we had some limit uh, restraints with literally the the amount of LEDs that existed in the world. <laughs> wow! L literally, you almost maxed out. No, we did. No, no, hmm. almost. I think we did. I wow. think we maxed out. Yeah, well, I had to get other lights that 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 weren't ideal in order to to do it. So, yeah, we. It, it was a very much a, a, a an approach of um, trying to use LEDs for for that reason, but also you know I. I like them fundamentally for the, the low power and also the, um, the lack of heat, which means lack of heat means lack of air conditioning yeah. in, a, in, a, in a stage. So all those things, but 
visuals first. Well, I just got to take a little pause to talk about the walls, you know, and the doors in this film, like the ornate wood carvings. I mean, I was just hoping, you know, that that there would be a shot that sort of lingered on them because I I wanted to just like absorb them. It it was so beautiful. And um, I'm curious, Patrice, were those uh, done by hand just for this film or or how was that achieved? Yes, they were done by hand. They are. Wow. The, the 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 nature of the set uh, when I was uh, drawing them at, at the beginning I I I felt that I I I needed to have some sort of um, some some sort of artistry and it and it fir- at first it came through um, through the script where they mentioned a, a mural with mm. the worm and um, and uh, that that one was kind of I, I saw it as a bro- big bronze mural that would have probably been made by, uh, I was imagining, like a local Fremen uh, artist that would have been like hired, okay, you, uh, you know, like, uh, just like in, in churches, you know, yes. back in the day. Or, and, and then I was imagining that those, you know, would probably tell the story of, uh, of uh, they would have probably been ordered by the, 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 the people in, the, in place uh, to tell the story of uh, spice mining and, and the story of, of how Arrakis became the most important planet uh, of the universe for the because of, of, of spice, and um, so there, there's um, so that it, it kind of came from that, and then to create a ballad, I, I wanted to have those those murals that you know that depicted the the feeling in the of of, Ar- of Arrakis and the life of Arrakis, and then I started working as well as having the idea of maybe the doors could be because the doors needed to have the same scale as as the architecture of the uh, the residency and let's use the same material and have you know like some 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 all the doors are different uh, of each room and uh, somehow they represent what's going on in the room yeah it creates this regal feeling immediately yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's a Thank you, thank you for noticing that. And, <laughs> and there, 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 there are others that were created that were only going to uh, to be in the, in VFX as well when we did mm. set extension, and um, and and the mur- and the mural of the worm was uh, was mm-hmm. also in the story, not to show the um, to portray the worm as a uh, necessarily extremely dangerous creature, but also as a, divin- a divinity. Right. A sacred being. A sacred being that commanded respect at the same time. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's why there's like sun. The sun is kind of the, 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 the mouth is like the sun, you know? Right. Yeah, I can kind of picture it in my head. Because it, it's the cover of the art and soul of Dune. Uh, yeah. So. so, yeah. Or at least the, like the, the book jacket. Yeah, it made the cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, speaking of doors, like the... I don't know what they're called, but to me they're blast doors, you know, on um Arakin. Those those doors just like the 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 mere idea that they had to go in, you know, at noon, it makes sense in the story, but seeing that manifested through these giant thick blast doors that had to be closed simply to even, you know, uh, survive there just created instantly this feeling um you know, just, I don't know, it created a connection in me where I didn't even need to see anymore. I just felt, okay, yeah, you know, and then the lighting, once those doors close and they're like in a more, you know, kind of uh, protected environment, just further 
creates this sense of place. Yeah, they're, they're blast doors, not, not necessarily for, 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 for weapons, but they're blast doors mm -hmm. because they need to be extremely thick because of the, yeah. again, the wind. The wind. Right. I remember, um, Derek, you know, like mm -hmm. during the conversations about staging um, early on, because there's a number of scenes where, you know, Leto is, is looking over his the kingdom and they're planning and they're talking and there's, you know, some exposition there that requires them to be seeing um, the, 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 the planet that they've just landed in. And, and we did discuss ways to do that really early and, and I'm, I'm positive, yeah, Patrice, you were involved in the conversations. We were like, okay, well... Do they, because there's no windows, right? Normally this is a, something in a normal movie, I say normal in inverted commas, uh, in, a, in any other film, you'd, you'd put them at a window and say, well, it's bad outside. It's really hard outside because you can't go out there without, without a still suit. Um, but, but here, here we are safely behind glass. And that wasn't really visually something that we appealed to anybody. It just didn't work because we didn't have the windows and for reasons that Patrice have just said. Mm -hmm. So I remember we, we talked about this balcony, didn't we? And we said, okay, well, logically, they can be outside. They've just arrived. They've just landed. They've been outside. You can be outside but for very short windows of time. And yeah, that's the only window they have, a window of time. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But I remember that those blast doors were a solution to that, to that dilemma, that expositional dilemma of how do you, <clears throat> how do you present people looking over the, and talking about their plans and then how do you realise that actually, no, they shouldn't really be outside? Well, <clears throat> you build those doors. And I remember first seeing those doors having been built and just thinking they were the most beautiful, thick. You know, part of then my responsibility is the DP. Of course, the exposition is a responsibility. They're standing on a balcony looking over a world and that's fine. But part of my job then is to feel and see those doors and to get far enough back to see and feel, to, to stage the scene in such a way that, you know, we see those doors closing and we then, as we see the doors closing, we feel the thickness of them and we mm -hmm. see the, the scale of the little humans against this size. And so those things are all really well balanced, I feel, in, in, in this film. And like you said, it's, um, it's, it's that idea of the bunker which keeps coming back to us as a viewer. So which then highlights the danger of where our characters might be going later in the story. I love that. And it goes to show, you know, something that happens so often in filmmaking, you know, you have a limitation and the solution to that limitation that that limitation itself creates uh, or demands is the best solution to even, you know, communicating the, the, the story point. So, I mean, I love it. I, I, I can't think of anything you guys could have done better to create that feeling and, and get that point across, you know, narratively anyway. So Totally. And, and I do remember when we, 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 we staged it, we also staged it out of the sun. So we made sure that they were in open shade, not in direct sun. Yep. So that you could justify it. And yet it felt like they were in really bright light like extremely bright light, and yet they were in Because they were looking out. They were looking yeah. out over a very bright uh, environment, exactly. That was bouncing back into them, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's where the entire world supply of LEDs came into play, huh? <laughs> well, no, that was, out, that was an exterior set. Oh, was right, it? Patrice? Hmm. Yeah, that was in the back lot. It's a big set in the back lot. Yeah, because yeah. I, I felt, we all felt, I mean, I think we, we may have been, 
we may have run out of stage space at that point in time. I don't know. Actually, no, but, but uh, it was it was always part of the uh, the idea to shoot whatever needed to be sh in the movie outside set. We'd shoot them outside. Rule of thumb was that. Yeah, but we also did run out of say stage space. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I think the expertise is right. It's like it was outside. Um, you know, we, we we were able to shoot it, stage it in such a way that it got very little sun on on it. I think we staged it facing north. You were able to control. You know, there was a whole series of conversations and light studies done. Mm, okay. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of of a shot that I wanted to specifically, or a little sequence rather that I wanted to ask you about because it, to me, it was kind of just a, such a powerful interplay between costume design, visual effects, music, sound design, performance, directing, and then of course production design and cinematography. And what I'm talking about is the arrival on Arrakis. Um, I, I know already that that was shot not in the desert of Jordan or Abu Dhabi where you guys shot, but, but in Budapest, which makes it all the more intriguing for me to ask about because you captured so many things. I mean, once they landed, there was that desert light and heat and sand and dust and wind. Um, and so one of my questions is, how was that created? And the other question is how the light was created when the ramp goes down and you see that light just coming on their faces. It was just such a beautiful, powerful moment of, um, you know, that moving light, uh, like opening up this new world on, on you know, onto them. Yeah, the archness of the of the light, uh, the journey. The journey begins for Paul Atreides. You know, just like yes, uh, yeah. It's a, a world that it, that that he's been researching uh, through film books and stuff. But he, he he's it's the first time that he experiences it for the, and uh, it's overwhelming. It's yeah, it's a no, it's a it's it's a sequence that has been uh, that was storyboarded by Denis uh, early on in the process uh, with mm -hmm. uh, Samu Deki, the storyboard artist. And um, yeah, it was shot. And uh, again, you know, like uh, Greg uh, and I, we, we we looked at the the back lot. We we created this giant uh, cement, like giant cement uh, pad, and um, on which we stage this scene and, and multiple other scenes. Mm -hmm. And um, we oriented the uh, the, um, for the the ramp, point. the ramp, yeah, for the face space, but the mm -hmm. ramp of the space, the Artrides, uh, spaceship. Uh, uh -huh. in the in the in the in the perfect uh, orientation uh, sun orientation for for Greg basically we 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 had to well that remember what's above them as they land right we've got 150 stories of of steel or, you know whatever the that that ship is made from um uh Patrice what is the ship made from it's made out of uh, graphite looking space metal <laughs> yep yep unobtainium Unobtainium. Mind on Pandora. <laughs> Unobtainium. So, so remember we had this massive thing above them, right? And it doesn't matter how many resources I get given by production, I, I could never create that exact feeling of that big shadow. But what I could do was the, with the right time of day and with the right light studies, which again is why it's really important to have the right pre-production and the right, um, the right planning, um, is to be able to create, position this thing at a point where you have the best chance of creating shadow. So, you know, the idea that maybe the sun's at, at you know, it's one o'clock in the afternoon, let's say in, in earth terms, um, and it's creating a shadow 
over the ramp and just in front of the ramp. So we worked out that we could do that with machines. And what would happen is that they would, they would come down the ramp in shade and then at some point they would enter sun. And then from that point, they're in sun. And it's wonderful that you didn't question where they were in the world because we would have failed in our, in our task of, um, uh, of, of making the movie seamless. You know, like if you'd suddenly start to go, oh, well, that was shot in Abu Dhabi. Oh, that was shot in... If you could tell, then I think that's a, a big fail on our behalf. So, you know, it is true that, that the light in Budapest is very different to the light in Jordan. And we, we had to work really hard and make sure that we were shooting with sun as well. And the sun was a big player in our, in our scheduling choices. You know, that there were times where we, we had a, a, a cloudy option and there were times where we had a sunny option. So we often had to wait for the sun to come out from behind the clouds. And, you know, it was frustrating, of course, because we knew that this scene had to happen in sun. Like it, it was it set up of all the scenes that had to happen in sun, this was the one because it effectively set up this planet for Paul and how he would then respond to it. So I could control when the, when the, the lift gate, for want of a better term. Mm -hmm. um, the bay ramp. The bay ramp came down. Um, I could control what that light did, you know, and I did that and I used digital Sputniks and I made a big, big wall of them and, you know, it was fantastic mm. and it had a beautiful, bright quality to it. And, you know, then combined with, you know, Gerd, who was our special effects supervisor, pushing in wind at the right time and some sand at the right time. And then, mm -hmm. then say, Timothy's and the actor's uh, performance of having this sun hit them. You know, I'm, I'm positive that there was a little bit of acting there, but I'm sure there was a bit of brightness that he was having to deal with. But there was also that kind of that brightness, that garish kind of thing. It's when you've, you've walked out of a cinema in the middle of the day mm -hmm. and you're just like, oh my God, particularly if you're in Los Angeles and you're, you know, you just, it's, your, your retinas are burning because of the, of the, of the brightness. So that was the, that was the feel. And that was the feel that Denis really wanted to see. And, and, um, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, and I appreciate you saying so, but hopefully we've achieved that goal through our- Oh, um, completely. But, but you know, one of the things, I spoke about this in an interview I did a couple of days ago, and, and it's good that we've got Patrice now to talk about this because I love the boldness of the design of where they're standing before that ramp comes down. Like mm -hmm. it's such a simple design and, and such a simple concept that I, I asked the question, why not make it more complicated? I mean, the thing is that it's such a great, beautiful design. If it had been any more complicated, it would have been not as good. So, but right. what I love, and I'll you know, speak about Patrice in the third person here, is that the work that he's done with Denis, they've never been afraid of simplifying and paring it back and being and understanding what the core, uh, the, the, the core root of the story is. I mean, you look at Arrival, and I've waxed lyrical to Patrice about Arrival, like you look at them in their beautiful orange suits um, in this dark world and you look at the, the aliens, black against white in this liquid. I mean, it's so visually, it's so simple, but so powerful. So I don't know, like the, the, the ship there, Patrice, I mean, I was involved in the discussions, but that was always going to be super simple, wasn't it? Yeah, no, abs absolutely. Like uh, Denis and I were, were, were fans on the, 
of the less less is more like uh, and, and especially for the design trying to to capture the the essence of something and and not put too much uh, makeup unnecessary makeup or elements on it and um it's it's funny you mentioned uh, arrival because that's kind of a the it's kind of a good example of um of the of the the um aesthetic quality and collaboration that Denis and I have uh was the idea for the they're riding on those asmat orange asmat suit on the back of a white pickup and then mm -hmm. to get to get into the uh the shell they 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 use a a scissor lift you know mm -hmm. and that's you know that's that's because you know we didn't want to what would the army have done back then they would have created a special machine that goes in inside a spaceship no they would have no. gone to to uh to the rental place so guys uh, this we've got this thing um overing over earth on the field <laughs> like uh 25 feet high get me a machine that can get me there like it's a scissor lift you know like it's 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 and that's kind of the <laughs> You know, like why does the ramp of the Artrades ship need it? It's 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 again mm -hmm. it's there it's it's getting down like an elevator, it's like a container, mm -hmm. and, and it it does what it needs to do. It doesn't need to be more complicated uh, with blinking lights or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And and then you 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 can make interesting shapes, keep them simple and and uh you know. Well the simplicity of the the concept alone is what makes it so powerful. I mean, you know, it's not like they're all hanging out in the galley of the ship and, and you know, eating something and talking about, you know, oh, I can't wait to see what the planet is like. They are in this sort of like, you know, moody, uh, ominous, almost, you know, very much uh, suspenseful state in anticipation of this moment. And then it arrives and it just creates the, that whole feeling for the audience. And it's just brilliant. They sign a deal with the emperor. There's no turning back. And they kind of yeah. know what they're getting in, themselves into and the dangers, you know, like the, the surrounding that, 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 that decision made by the emperor uh, for them. And uh, okay, uh, let's 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 try to survive. You know, <laughs> basically, mm -hmm. let's try to make the best out of it. You know, and that's where I must say, as a as a you know as a fan of cinema, you know, working with Patrice and Denis was 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 remarkable because I loved the fact that that's the thinking. You know, well, why mm -hmm. would you put stuff down there? Why would you do that? Why do you need that? Because the thing is that. There are some. There is, if you've noticed, there are some pretty amazing actors in this movie. I don't know if you'd noticed in the in the. Truly. Yeah, there are some pretty amazing actors with some amazing performances and amazing faces. But you put those. Use that as example. Use the elevator. Use the lift or the the cargo lift as we, as Patrice just mentioned. Like, you don't want to be looking at anything in the background. You want to be looking at those faces, and when that when that, Paul has that sort of that that hesitation and when that light comes and opens on his face like you want the focus of that shot not to be on anything else except that kid's eyes kids sorry that's rude that boy's eye that man's eyes right so like you don't want anything beyond that point to be distracting you from the from the story this is where i think denis is a master at understanding and and focusing and everything has a purpose every single piece of something has a reason that it exists and you know I, i'm a massive fan of that so yeah he, he studies you know the 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 scene so 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 much that he, he extracts the the essential 
what needs to be uh, to be said and keep it, you know, to, to the simplicity, like mm. you know. Well, I'm curious from both of you working with Denis, um, what does he do that that makes him a great director? Uh, from not necessarily the perspective of you know what you see on screen, because that you know I can I can see for myself, but from working with him as a collaborator, what's his process like, and um, how does he work with both of you? Greg, I'd like to hear from I'd like to hear from Patrice first, actually. Yeah. Okay, you want to hear from me? Okay. What what I what I what I like about Denis first of all is that we um, we have a, a similar sensibility, and. Um, and what I what I like about him is that like, uh, again it's the it's the it's it's the less the less is more. What I like about Denis is that he um, he's a true he, he he can inspire you by by putting challenging ideas in front of you and like like try to solve this and like try to, it's um, it's very stimulating to work with, with, with some with someone like that and who's also very open-minded to ideas so that's you know that it it brings your your you you like i um i admire him a lot so I, at the same time you want you want to you want to you want to throw your 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 best your best ideas and 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 uh, anyways it, it's it's bizarre to say but um yeah he puts he gives a lot of love around him and he, and, he, and he respects his collaborator, just like uh, uh, Greg said in the, in the beginning of this, uh, this podcast. Mm-hmm. And the, lo- the love he gives makes you want to give more love, you know? So, so it's like about your craft and about, about uh, what you bring to, to the game, you know? It's like uh, he's extremely encourages, you know, uh, thinking outside the box, which I uh, enjoy. You could say he's more led by the heart rather than by the ego. There's no ego. There, there's, there, there's, that's the, in, in this theme. That's that's what's the that's what's great because there there's no ego and 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 the the best idea at the end of the day wins. You know, it's like uh, it's 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 perfect. You know, there and 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 also he will always like uh, uh, emulate his team members. You know, when 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 we're we're with him, you know, he's not the type of directors who. Who says you know it's a, it's his, it's that every, everything is is his ideas you know it's it's just like it's 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 a true he's a true leader and just by acting like that he he commands respect you know there's a there's a very overused expression when you describe somebody as wearing their heart on their sleeve yeah and it's really overused it's really overused often it's used for people who are um, you know. Emotional, overly emotional, or, or going through a period of time in their life that they're they're emitting emotion. What I see is wearing one's heart on their sleeve, is that that you know exactly where they stand about any issue. You don't have to guess it. You don't have to think. You don't have to play a game of like, okay, so they're telling me they like an idea, but I'm. I'm worried. I'm worried that they're trying to not offend me by saying they actually don't like it. Or they, like when Denis likes something or loves something, you know it. There's no doubt. There's no if, mm. buts or maybes. He's extremely honest. Um, yeah, yeah, extraordinarily. And I, I use this as an example of why I, I get along well with the French Canadians. Like the Australians and the French Canadians are very similar in that we, we, both, we both are like as, as effusive as each other, but we're also very quick to say, eh, 
don't like that. That's pretty crap. Or that's a bit, mm. like, you know, we're, we don't try and sugarcoat things, um, but without being, you know, uh, you know, rude or whatever. But... We're not, we're not there to, yeah. to, 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 to try to, 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 to seduce one another. We're there to, 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 to make the best, you know, to try to, to, to get on with the job as quickly as possible. There's an honesty. Yeah. It's not, um, and it's not yeah, taken like, uh, rudely when someone says I, that idea sucks. You know, it's taken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. What, 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 <laughs> what I love about Denis too, and this maybe is not necessarily the mark of a good director as such, because that's a whole different conversation, right? Like you can, we can talk about what makes a good, a visionary, right, versus a good leader, and you know, Denis, he he treats everybody with the same level of respect everybody on the set regardless of who they are regardless of the job they do and you know you could be the the number one on the call sheet as far as the actors go or you could be in the craft service van and if you've if you've worked really hard and you've done your best like you get the same level of love um of course if you turn up to work unprepared i'm sure there'd be the same level of come on man like let's come on really so there's there's an equality there which I think is really important as a human. And I really love that because I think it's a, um, I, I, I love that respect. And I love that respect that Denis gives me, Patrice, Paul. Um, I love the respect that he's, he's given his other DP collaborators. You know, I love that because I just think that it's a, it's a, it's a joyous thing. Now, from a, from a directorial perspective, what makes him a great director? Well, I, I think he's, like I said, he's, he's just got great taste. He's, he's, makes elegant choices he 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 knows what he likes and he can focus on it he can listen to his heart not his head like there is a whole series of things i think he has mastered as the director to to do the job well mm -hmm. and you know instinct listening to instinct because remember directing is not a simple case of you know just cruising through and picking the best ideas it's not that easy sometimes there's a really fantastic idea but it's going to cost X amount of money and you're going to lose a day of shooting because you do this X fantastic idea. So then as a director, you've got to go, right, well, that day of shooting, do I lose that or do I take that great idea? Do I do it this way and do I forego X, Y, and Z? Like this is, it's a, it's a game. It's a massive tactical game that the director has to play um, to, to, to get a movie through. And Denise, he relishes that game. He loves it and he's good at it. Yeah, you know, the the fact that you use the word elegant is something which I noted as well. It I mean, simply watching the film, the way it is structured and paced and and the shot choices, it feels elegant. The whole film has this very intentional and efficient kind of shot structure and it feels like each shot informs the next. Um, you know, you were talking about the the staging that he does and and I'm curious about how that also kind of dovetails with the coverage that he does. I mean, I can imagine the, the way the film turns out is obviously crafting the editing, but because of how efficient and elegant it feels, I feel like it must have been shot with, you know, this kind of end result in mind. So um, how do the two of you approach coverage on set? That's a pretty good question. Sometimes there's a, um, a discussion when you see the actors do it. There's a couple of different ways you would shoot a scene. One, you would lean very heavily into the storyboards, you know, which is Denis' opportunity when he's when he's by himself with Sam Hideki, who's a uh, storyboard artist, to just dream a bit, just to come up with ideas, to 
to, to make mistakes, to, to embarrass himself, to, to, to come up with genius ideas, whatever it is, it's a great opportunity for him to do that. Now, when we also get together, he and I, um, it's the same sort of thing. You know, there's, there's not as huge a time pressure when we're standing on a set in the morning, eating away at a shooting day to just talk about things, talk about a why, talk about this, like find a reference. It's kind of like brainstorming. Um, and, you know, we did a little bit of that in June, unfortunately with, with a limited amount of prep that I had and the complexity of the technical that was happening, I definitely didn't get to storyboard with Denis as much as I would have liked to have, you know, and because that's, that's a really fun process for me. But I also have to uh, be mindful of, of shooting a movie, like technically. So, you know, I think that the, some, some scenes come from the place of a storyboard basis and then some scenes come from the actors blocking it, you know, and we, we look at the blocking, we look at where characters sit in a room. We, on the pre-light, you know, on a Saturday, hopefully we get to pre-light the next week's work or the week after and we get some stand-ins and, and, you know, I present some ideas of maybe where they're positioned. You know, is Paul on the bed being examined by Yui? Is he next to the window? Is he at the desk? Like, where is Paul when he's getting the examination? And where is Jessica? Is she kneeling down? Is she standing up? Is she sitting on the bed next to her? So there are all these discussions we have in advance to say, well, if we put them side by side, then it means they're going to be a little, you know, clunky, but if we put them face to face, the coverage will be a lot more intimate. Um, and we come up with an idea and then we introduce the actors in the morning to, the, to, to, to a block and we see what they come up with because often they'll come up with a better idea. They'll, be, they'll, have, they'll come in fresh without the restraints of technical or the restraints of having thought about the scene for you know, two years and they'll come up with a better idea. So there are times we have to listen to that better idea but then there are other times we say, yeah, I think our idea for staging was better because it gets the point across faster. Mm, makes total sense. One of the things that kind of goes with that is, you know, obviously what is in the frame. And in this film, there was a lot of what felt to me like very purposefully shallow focus and, and distinct framing. Can you talk to me about your choice of lenses and, and also if there were any rules that you set in terms of camera movement and, um, and lens choices? Well, we, we had two different sets of lenses. We used, we used Panavision lenses um, with the Alexa LF and we used Panavision Ultra Vistas for anything that was 240. Mm -hmm. So 2.4.0 is the more intimate stuff with Paul inside the residence in, in Caladan. You know, but, but we felt like whenever, because Paul's ultimate goal was to get outside, right? Like from, from you know, minute one of this movie, his, his ultimate desire is to get out into the, into the desert mm -hmm. and it's like it's like a kid i don't know our 10 year old starting to go to the shop by himself and it's literally like we've taken the chains off him and let him loose you know like he's just 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 and it's the same with paul like this desert is this beacon of of light for him so we we deliberately chose a different ratio for you know uh imax ratio for that and we shot those with with spherical lenses mm -hmm. and so between those two ratios we kind of plan the film out to basically mirror paul's emotional journey oh i love that yeah. so his, his the emotional journey opens up and the frame literally becomes more expansive to you know complement that exactly you know and when you have the opportunity to watch it in imax then 
then you start to see the world in this kind of larger, bigger, more kind of expansive size. Yeah. So what about the use of depth of field? I mean, obviously, knowing you shot on the Alexa LF, you know, a larger format sensor, um, and I'd like to you know, talk about that briefly, but um, just simply due to physics, you know, when you do that, you'll have more, more uh, shallow depth of field. But it seems like you really accentuated that. Um, what was your kind of intention behind, you know, using that the way you did? I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily, I mean, you might be thinking about a couple of key frames that we, mm -hmm. we cracked the iris a little bit more, and that's perhaps to get into Paul's head a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So that's very possible. Um, for the most part, I mean, we stuck with a, kind of a a medium uh you know medium to open aperture so not not at this not at the extreme end of it basically mm -hmm. we tried to have a little bit of depth of field i mean for the most part when we were out wide we wanted to be out wide but then when we wanted to be close i, I felt like i wanted to be more intimate now there is an argument to say that that when you're in close with lots of depth of field you want to feel your surroundings a bit more and I've had this discussion with other directors about other films and even other directors about not other films, just as a, as a point of discussion. And I feel like there's no right answer. It comes down to the film that you're making and being consistent with the choices that you make for that film. You know, I was talking to, to Chloe Zhao about Nomadland and because I, I love her work generally and, you know, I got the chance to work with her recently on a commercial. Mm, wow. And we were talking about the theory of... of depth of field and sharpness of lenses and and you know her theory is quite different to that she likes being closer she likes being a lot more seeing the world and having a bit more depth and which is not what june was but doesn't mean that what she does or what june does is worse or better than the other it's just consistent and consistency and um you know i felt that we 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 weren't massively wide when we were close like we weren't on wider lenses, we're on mid lenses, in which case we could allow the background to fall away, therefore allowing us to focus on those characters at that point in time. Mm -hmm. You know, like remembering in the back of our mind about the scale that existed outside of the frame, but but still focusing on the characters. Right, right. So sounds like kind of, I mean, you tell me um, if there were any rules that you specifically kind of defined for the, the, the photography of this film, but it sounds to me like you basically had an overarching philosophy um, to the approach of, you know, of lensing it uh, based on the story and your discussions with, with Denny. And then that just kind of informed, you know, each choice, um, you know, when it was being made. Exactly. And, and you know, sometimes, sometimes you need to make certain choices based on um, maybe limitations with budget. You know, sometimes you might not have uh, an exterior outside a set that you you can see, so therefore you have to blow it out, or therefore you have to have it out of focus. Mm -hmm. You know, we were fortunate in this case to to not have those limitations. So, we we had, I mean, here's a perfect example. Like, Patrice and Co built a beautiful training room in Caladan, oh, yeah. which is where we first meet Gurney Halleck. I mean, it, it's a stunning piece of design, stunning piece of build. I mean, the the everything we did on there was was a joy because everywhere you looked was absolutely fantastic and that was a 360 set too right yeah yeah wow yeah. um i mean it was i mean again this is the thing this is why i want everyone to see the film as much as they can but also to read tanya's book 
you know, because it's, it's got a lot of, lot more information about what those sets are. I mean, I, I take for granted that I've been able to stand on those sets, um, but I forget the fact that, you know, unfortunately everybody else hasn't and they are, they're just beautiful. They're as beautiful as they look on screen. And I, and I say that because like, I didn't make them look beautiful. Well, yes, were. you did. So, <laughs> well, I could have, I could have maybe lit it with fluorescence and, <laughs> and flat lit it. Anyway, anyway, but the point is, is that that it starts from a very good grounding. But but in a scene like that, with with camera movement, there's a fight scene that goes on between those guys. Like, and we very early on decided that we did not want the fights to be reportage or born supremacy style fighting, like uh, camera moves. I mean, we didn't want to sort of st get into that world of handheld. Not to say that we wouldn't get there. Yeah, not to say we wouldn't get there at times, right? So there's those rules that need to be broken. Mm -hmm. But you know, that particular, we wanted to introduce this fighting style. We needed to, this is the first time we understand how fighting works with the, with the, with the shields and with the swords. And, you know, so it was important that we treated it like a dance. It was important that we treated it like it was, we just saw it and we didn't try and augment it. And so every camera move that we did was pretty much in service of seeing as much as we can, but not seeing everything. Do you know what I mean? Like if mm -hmm. you're too wide, you don't feel it. If you're too mm -hmm. tight, you don't feel it. You've got to come up with the right balance of, of width for a shot. Yeah. And, you know, if you've got arms flailing, boom, 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 well, you're in a mid shot, right, from the waist up. If suddenly you see someone spin around and put someone on the ground, you've got to be wider but then you don't want to cut wide for a second and then cut back in. Like you need to, it's a dance of the camera as much as it's a dance of the fighting. So for the fighting where possible, we tried really hard to, to, to treat them as one shotters. We never, of course, did, but we tried where possible to treat them like one, one shotters. And that puts a lot more pressure on everyone involved. It puts more, more pressure on the actors to get their moves right. Because remember, as good as their actors are at acting, you know they're not they're not warriors that have trained for twenty years to to fight. You know, like so they've got to put more pressure on them, puts more pressure on the stunt team, and more pressure on, on on me to have exactly the right angle and have it not fixed in the edit, so to speak. Makes total sense. Um, you you mentioned a dance, and it just reminded me of this moment during the the hunter seeker. Um, moment, you know, when he's kind of ha has his book playing back um, about the Laura on Arrakis, and then he kind of hides behind this. Uh, I'm guessing it's some kind of, you know, I, I, I recall an incense bush mentioned, um, and he's sort of like dancing with that hunter seeker to kind of evade it, and then the way that the light kind of, you know, modulates across his face and then his eyes. Uh, I just I had to ask you how that was done. Was that just done with like a projector projecting that image, or what'd you do for that? Yeah, for, for those for those particular little moments, yes. You know, we that was a, a great opportunity where I, I believe Patrice, tell me, I think that that um, you and Paul had found a, an, uh, some some artwork that yeah, the, 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 the there's a, there's an artist that um, I really liked. Um, David Spriggs, he's, a, he's an artist, he's a Canadian artist from Vancouver, and um, I like his work because it's it's kind of it it makes the um, 
it creates 3D images by doing like multiple acetates, just like put all over, like a spaced, uh, I don't know how to, to express it in English, but, but there's a little space in between each that as if they were like all sections of, of uh, uh, the 3D object, but all, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Different planes of depth. Different planes of depth. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. Thank you so much. And, um, and, and Paul Lambert started uh, working like a, like a 3D project projector idea uh, with his team. And, um, and that's, where it, that's where it actually came from. It's it's not it doesn't look at all like a David Spriggs, but that's when that's where the um, where we were thinking about if he needs to hide in a in a in a in a projection that would be three D, you know, how would light interact with the character? It's really the the the, the process when when we when we're making movies is quite fun like that because the call out is to like say all right he's he's watching a three D projection right that's what this what what the story is. He's watching a 3D projection and he then needs to hide within the 3D projection effectively to evade the hunter seeker. And so the act of going back then and finding references for those things. You know, I, I recall, I, I think I found some, some Japanese projection artists as well that, that, um, that were doing some very interesting things and, you know, like the, the mm, like as a lighting installation kind of thing. It, totally, totally. And you know, taking uh -huh. some of the work of of films in the past, some photographers, and you know, just and not, you know, just just drawing inspiration from uh, from the world to to create to solve, you know, a problem like that. I think that it's a um, that's a fantastic example of solving a problem as a group. You know about everyone bringing a little piece of pie to the, to the party and, you know, and, and figuring out the best way to do it. And then the final results from, from Paul, you know, like there's a, there's that beautiful shot that I'm seeing going around on Instagram at the moment, which is a still of, of, um, you know, uh, Timothy's eyes in, in the, in the tree. And it's beautiful. Like it's yeah. so beautiful. So evocative. And it's a yeah. shot you've you've never seen before. You know, the closest thing I've ever seen in a movie is uh, not an uncommon shot, which is um, you know looking through a keyhole or looking through a uh, a peephole. You know, and having kind of light shining through the you know the um, the lens of you know the peephole and a door, and then going yep. into the eye. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's a it's a that's a really nice example of kind of how we solve problems through through multiple referencing through discussions and you know again somebody somebody said to me the other day about um the introduction of the baron um being very sort of apocalypse now oh right i'm yeah. like i was like wow that's a really interesting idea. yeah i mean we n never ever ever talked about apocalypse now i don't think i did did you patrice yeah we did <laughs> we did did we <laughs> yeah we did all right <laughs> okay I, I didn't i mean for that particular there's one particular shot which is the um, the Kurtz reference, but I remember I didn't I didn't look at that. We didn't look at that, but it became like a uh, there's a collective. There's also a collective referencing in one's mind as well. I think yeah. you know, and it's impossible for us as a collective bunch of film lovers to not be able to kind of in our minds know you know certain shots from 2001 or from Apocalypse Now or from 
you know, mm-hmm. other films. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it it informs the work a lot. We're all kind of working from a, you know, collective unconscious pool of references. And, and the things that are inspiring to some people seem to be the things that, you know, are inspiring to a lot of others as well. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I you know, you see it in, in people's work and Denis's work and your work, you know, um, has certainly done that for me. I mean, Dune has just been since I've seen it, it's been hard to even get out of my head. These all these moments and all these uh just like feeling and and sense impressions that the film has created, which most films don't do for me. So I'm curious to ask, what was the most creatively gratifying moment for each of you where you like really kind of figured out or overcame a challenge um, that you're just really proud of in this film? Um, from my behalf, I would say the Nexus set was uh, was was the was a was the most challenging and the most multi-department collaborative effort in this movie mm-hmm. to to bring to to bring to a reality uh, a cinematic reality uh, uh, the, the 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 concept art for 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 for, for that set was a, a big headache uh, for everybody and um, I will uh, I will let uh, Greg explain it as uh, better English than mine. Uh, <laughs> well, he only did part of bringing the set to life. You still had to, you know, figure out how it was going to be created. Oh no, no, no! But uh, listen, we um, so it was it was a set that I drew uh, like uh, one of the first set that I drew when I was uh, doing the, uh, uh, like uh, in, in in soft prep, but in I think it was like in early April or late March. Uh, 2018 and you're like uh, okay well then I'm happy with that you know and, and then and then comes the harsh reality like we need to do that for real and um it's I don't know if you remember the scene but it's uh it's it's when um uh, uh Liet Kynes uh leads uh, Paul Jessica and Duncan Idaho into this giant uh uh dome like um right yeah and we see green for the first time since Caladan. Yeah, exactly. But just before that, there's a room. There's a giant room with a with a massive uh, uh, mast in the middle. Mm, right. Yes. Oh, I loved that set. Just before I go into the uh, into the uh, the explanation of what it is, I was interviewed recently for uh, a uh, traveling magazine, and they were asking me about the uh, Dune locations. And obviously, I mm-hmm. spoke about. Uh, about Jordan, Abu Dhabi, Budapest, and Norway, and that person asked me, "Yeah, but the physical location. I, I'm curious about the." And she mentioned that room, and I said, "Well, that was be- between stage one, two, three, and four, uh, <laughs> Origo Studio in Budapest. That room, that place doesn't exist." Wow. So, as a collective effort, um, we um, we had already started the the, the thinking about uh, uh, building. Uh, Higher than uh, 24, sometimes 30 feet, uh, above that 30 feet, 24 feet line, um, building all all above that in uh, in fabric, in frame fabric that would basically continue building this, the the right volumes of the of the set. That we did that uh, on uh, on multiple uh, on multiple sets on, on this movie. Uh, so we carried out that 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 concept. Um, Exterior uh, between uh, to to build that the, that specific set mm-hmm. between stage one, two, three, and four. We um, it was uh, it was a, like a, a big open alley on both sides. We closed down one side by building at thirty feet uh, part of the set, the entrance to that set. 
we cladded three walls, uh, four walls uh, with the, the with the fabric of the of the average color, the average sand color uh, of the set. We build, we partly build at thirty feet high, the mast uh, that that supports the uh, the roof in the concept art, and the model as well, and uh, then. To create the shadow, because we we needed like a harsh like a shadow on 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 the floor of that set, mm-hmm. which means you really also needed a really bright hard light. Exactly. So that's why we that's what dragged us to 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 shoot that exterior. Mm. So we we so the riggers pulled like some uh, some 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 wire lines uh, between the two the two uh, sound stage uh, the, the roof of the two the the, the four sound sound stage. And we created like a retractable roof uh, that would recreate the spokes of the roof in the concept art. But obviously, the, 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 the studio height was like around 65 feet. But normally, in the real world, that set would be 150 feet high. So we had to play with, you know, with how the shadow would go through that gigantic gobo to create the right size of that shadow on the floor we needed to do a bit of a of a, of a, of study a computer study with the, the the angle of the sun and the, so we we scaled that um, that gobo to to so it would appear that the ceiling was much higher mm. does that mean you made it smaller uh, yeah. or appeared further away and the and the other thing during for that set um the ground uh, of that set was 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 sand, and on on Arrakis, uh, there's no humidity, there's no rain. So for weeks we were uh, we used agricultural uh, equipment to turn over the sand so it would dry properly. And whenever there was like rain, we would like gather it in a pile, cover it. So so that little you know making sure that the sand was. Uh, was uh, was dry was was something else wow. because the roof was on was made out of fabric. We had to watch out for wind as well. Wind was going to be our enemy. So that was a a set that when we all thought that was the best way to do it, we looked at each other and said, "That's crazy enough to work." And uh, and that's a and that's a theory. Something that I always say when something is is crazy enough to work is we it's, we know it's. <laughs> The, the the opportunity for failure is great, so we all watch out our our blind sides, and uh, we pay so much attention into to making sure that uh, we get it right. That in, eventually we always get it right because it's 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 it's. You have to. Yeah, we have to. There's no choice. There's no choice. Yeah. You know, there's failure is not an option. So, and also the orientation of the sun of those sound stage was was not was not ideal. So for Greg to get the right sunlight, rather the right shadow, we needed to shoot that specific section of the uh, mm-hmm. of the of that scene between, I think it was like between ten forty five and 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 eleven fifteen. So we're like a, oh, like, wow. a like, we had like a window of half an hour, and uh, that was uh, when, when that um, that day was over. We all high fived each other because uh, we we we. We were very happy, and 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 that you know it also needed not just like uh, uh, Denis, Greg, Paul, and uh, 
and uh, it also needed the 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 the, the attention of uh, our first AD, Chris Carreras, and uh, and and Joe Caricello, our line producer, were all in, you know, like to make this happen. You know, we we all pulled together to to make this a reality. It was such a it was such a um, a, a tricky one from day one. That I, I I always we always flagged this one as being the, the tricky one because it, it normally there are some solutions like you can stage it outside like we did with the you know the the residence balcony for example um, you can stage it inside and you can light with you can get ten HMIs ten eight NKs like at that point we weren't thinking in terms of limitations even if I wanted a hundred eighteen codes I mean we maybe could have rented them for a few days. I don't know. But the reality was that it wouldn't have given the, wouldn't have given us the effect that the artwork gave us. Mm. And my argument, every time we talk through other solutions, and trust me, we talk through other solutions with everybody, with production managers, with producers, with first ADs, like this was a, this was a thorn in the side of everybody. So, we talk through solutions and everyone goes, you can't shoot it inside with an HMI. I'm like, yeah, but it wouldn't look like that. I said, it, 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 it will look a certain way, but it will not look like that. And we doggedly protected that artwork. Like Patrice, myself, you know, with the support of Chris, like we doggedly, and Denis, we doggedly supported the, 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 the achievement of this artwork because it's like, you, waste all your you may as well have wasted all of that time coming up with a concept if we're going to do it in some production friendly way because in that case it couldn't have been done any other way and i'm i'm happy for anyone in this who's listening to this podcast to to text me that they disagree because i would like to know another way to do that you know for future reference actually more than anything just to learn but to create those big wagon wheels of light that we did right on the scale that we did, with the brightness level that we did, and to have, you know, the Sardaukar be able to walk through it and not feel like they're double shadowing and not feel like it's an HMI. Do, do you know what I mean? Creating that contrast mm -hmm. was going to be impossible in any other way. So it was something we flagged really early. Like Patrice and I flagged super early in the, in the, in the case to say, hey, this is a problem, this set, by the way. This is a problem in that it's not going to fit into our standard kind of box of where we shoot things. And we kept fighting the fight. We kept coming up with ideas. We, we looked at a, a sand quarry. wasn't possible because of the rigging. Okay, so move on. Let's look at something else. So we just kept looking at options. And, again, this is where it comes down to teamwork. You know, Patrice's um, fantastic art team and we had some 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 great riggers that were able to do it and it was challenging and it stressed people out and we 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 got through it and we did it and i um my me too i'm really proud of that set not for just what it represents visually because it is very interesting visually but i don't know if you would necessarily sit in the theater and and wonder how they did it unless we're talking to you about it which is again part of part of the success I mean, so I, I don't know if it, I would implore your listeners to go back and watch the film and watch that scene. And, you know, I, I, I do think there are some stills out there in the world of that particular location. And I think there are some coming out in American Cinematographer and, um, you know, there are some stills. So watch the film a few more times and then have a look at the stills. Mm -hmm. it, 
It looks pretty simple how we achieved it, but it was the furthest from simple. Wow. Well, was that your answer though for for the, you know, your work in the film that you're just most creatively gratified by? Because that was Patrice's answer, and I don't know if it was also yours. Um, it's one of them. I had a number of them. You know, I the work inside the ornithopter, um, as simple as it may have looked. We, you know, again, it's all about pushing against the norms that that normally occur on a film set. Like normally, interior ornithopter work is done on a gimbal, on a on a on a back lot with blue screens all around. But but Paul and I recognised that that wasn't going to look good lighting wise, so we we found a really high point, uh, like a high hill in, in Budapest, and we built a, uh, the, the gimbal on top of that. We built a dog collar around it. Now, again, some of the things that, like when you're making a film, some of the successes of a film are not just the visuals, they're the way you got to the, the visuals. And, the, and, and, and being dogged was kind of a way that we got the ornithopter shot properly. I mean, one of the most... One of the most enjoyable experiences though, and for me just as a, as a going back to my small film roots, was the time that we spent in, in Abu Dhabi at the end of the movie um, because it was a really small intimate little, little group, you know, and mm. we're doing basically two-handers. And that's where I come from as an Australian filmmaker. You know, that's the first movies that I made were basically two-handers. Yeah, and skeleton crew in like a desert environment too, right? Yeah, small. So getting back to that and doing it was really enjoyable. So, but, but this is the thing, like on a film like June, it's the entire package of a film that makes it enjoyable. So it's those problems that we solved with the Nexus. It's the problems that we solved with the, the gimbal. It's the you know, the stuff that we solved in Jordan. Um, and I don't know, it's the, it's the culmination of everything. So to, to, to make one specific, it's a bit tricky for me, but there's some of my highlights. No, beautiful. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, I just love the film and I love the work you both did to contribute to it. And I think, you know, clearly from talking to you, that comes from the love that was put into it. Um, yeah, I just got to tell you, congratulations on today's amazing news that uh, part two is happening. That is so exciting for me. And um, I love that it's happening, you know, on the day that I'm talking to you guys. We're very excited. Congrats. Nice. Thank you, mate. Cheers, buddy. I can't wait. And uh, thank you guys so much for sharing your time and your uh, experiences on this film with me. It's been amazing to hear about it. Thank you so much. Derek, thank you. It's been a pleasure, mate. Cheers. Dune is by far one of the most inspiring pieces of cinema that I've seen in a long time. And I am so grateful that Greg and Patrice shared their insights about making it with me and with you. So please be sure to subscribe to the podcast for future conversations. And if you'd like to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, that would be wonderful to help new listeners discover the show. Thank you for listening to the Art of the Shot podcast, and I hope you enjoyed. I want to just take a moment and thank our sponsor, Evidence Cameras. They're not just another rental house, but born from working camera professionals passionate about the gear that helps make the shot and helping you achieve your vision. And they've now moved to a bigger and better location just outside Atwater Village with more equipment and staff than ever before. They've even partnered with Production Space right next door, offering a 10,000 square foot production stage, including a large state-of-the-art panoramic LED video wall for virtual production work. Now open, I encourage you to consider giving them a shot for your next project. (laughs) 